So very, very welcome to this world premiere <laughs> of um, live doing our podcast, Start Worrying Details to Follow, live on stage. Thank you all for coming here. As Johan said, my name is Karin Pettersson. I work at Aftonbladet. This is my partner in crime, Georg Dietz, um, a journalist at Der Spiegel and also... Um, works with the project Disrupt Democracy. And this podcast is a collaboration between our two organizations and the, the two of us. And I should also say that this podcast is co-hosted by a European think tank, Social Europe. So you can find all our episodes on um, Acast or uh, Podcaster or on the um, Social Europe web- home webpage. Yeah, I'm also happy to be here. Um, a word to the music, maybe. It's uh, a song called um, People United Will Never Be Defeated, played by our friend Igor Levid. And it's a take on a Chilean revolutionary song. So mm-hmm. by the f- American composer Frederick Zhevsky. Um, it's the theme of the podcast, uh, which also sort of explains explains that it's a leftist project, I think, that we're doing, um, trying to find out what that means to be leftist in this time of um, democratic, uh, well, failure or democratic struggle um, in a time of technological disruption. Um, This is more or less the broad um, scope of of the podcast to try to find um, leading thinkers to... um, (laughs) come up with um, productive new ideas about how to All right, let's um, go look for ma- make it happen. <laughs> and, <laughs> That's a nice pivot. <laughs> yeah. And, and so, if, I mean, it's leftist, but it's, um, I guess, uh, uh, there's a certain tension, usually, between Karen and me, just to make that uh, drama clear. Karen pretends um, to be a social democrat. I pretend to be an anarchist or utopian. Um, we'll, we'll see how that plays out today. Um, with Zeynep, um, who I'm really uh, looking forward to talk to. So, um, from us to our guest of honor and the main uh, person here today, um, Nobel Week Dialogue invited Zeynep Tufekci to uh, their big conference in Gothenburg, and I had the privilege um, of talking to you a couple of times on, on Saturday. I'm, and I've been following um, Zeynep for a long time, and She's one of the most interesting thinkers that I know of um, about the internet and especially the interplay between this new uh, layer of technology and mm-hmm. the, the real world and how people actually um, try to work together. So very, very welcome, Zeynep Tufekci. You're a techno-sociologist, an activist, an author, and, uh, and a professor. So welcome here. Thank you for inviting me. Sure. Maybe the... the beginning should be the the broad picture and then we can narrow it down Uh, you wrote this fascinating book um, Twitter and Tear Gas about the time between in a way Tahir 2011 and Trump to uh, satisfy Karen's uh, yearning for for alliterations Um, it's it's amazing um, how in those six years um, everything I don't know turned bad I would take um, it even earlier. Well, you went, yeah, tell us. So, so you, I mean, you were a veteran of protests. You went to uh, Mexico for, to the Zapatistas in 96, 
But you later, a little later. A yeah. little later. I caught up later. Um, and you went to um, Seattle. I, well, I've I been involved. It. Like I, the first. See, I grew up in Turkey, so this is sort of what has to ground all of that. And when I grew up in Turkey, the public sphere in Turkey was really closed. There was one TV station, one radio station, and we didn't really get a lot of news. But I come from a techno like I come from a technical background, so I started working at IBM really early on. Lots of coincidences there, which and they had this global intranet. So even before Turkey had internet, I had this little taste of being able to speak to people around the world. And I thought, wow, this is going to change everything. This is like 90s, right? Um, and when, does, when Turkey got email in like mid-90s, we've got the bulletin boards and then internet. I got on it as fast as I could because it's like amazing, the source of information. And because I was always interested in social change and I knew that censorship was a key way in which that governments control people, thought they can't control things anymore. That's how I, I caught the tail end of the Zapatistas, right? Because they had already started, but that was the movement that was kind of sort of people were getting attention. So I traveled to, uh, they had Encuentros. Uh, they, I went to Chiapas, which where the insurgency was. And then there was a bunch of things afterwards. There was the, 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 the corporate globalization protests, the WTO protests uh, in Seattle and DC and a bunch of other places. 99? Yes. Yeah. Um, that was sort of the first wave. And then 9-11 happened, which of course was horrible. Um, but after that, we also had this other horrible development, this war, uh, the, the sort of drive to war. And I worked pretty hard on that anti-war movement because, I mean, I'm from the Middle East. I have no illusions about Saddam Hussein, but I thought it's really a bad idea to go break the Middle East with the U.S. military, which is good at breaking. And that's the one that failed. But in a way, that was very instructive to me in that... So I was in 2003. I was in New York. It was the biggest protest ever. Like, if any of you are old enough, you might remember the anti-war marches in 2003 because they happened everywhere. I believe there was one in Stockholm as well. And um, I, I'm short, right? So I climb on top of something because that's what I always do. I, I also study protests. I, I just sort of want to see the whole thing. I thought, wow, this is so big. This is the biggest march ever globally. I said, surely they can't ignore us. Surely they can't go ahead. And the next day, George W. Bush, who's then president, says, why should I take a focus group seriously? Now, at the time, I was really offended. I'm like, millions of us in the streets, we have power. And I'm like, oh, no, you don't. Well, it turns out he was right. Like, he went ahead with the war. He even got reelected. So I remember really thinking, like, I, I remember first being offended and then really thinking. Like, was he right? That we didn't have power. And then... Occupy happens. Similarly, biggest march ever, global march. It goes from email to Occupy to then, then to be like with two weeks, they organize a march, biggest march ever. Is there a single really strong policy change out of it? Not really, right? Well, we I can mean, talk about that. Yeah, I mean, we Occupy did a that. lot of things. Occupy yeah. did a lot of things. But you say, so if, I mean, something happened in between, and that's, I think, the pivotal thing. Uh, social networks. Yes, but I will, I, will, I will come to that. So we, Occupy happens. The thing that interested me is that we get to do the protests. After that, we have the Arab Spring. 
And you sort of start seeing this pattern, right? These giant wave of protests. And then in 2013, the Gezi Park protests in Turkey happened. And at the time, I'm not in Turkey. I'm in Philadelphia in this conference. And at that conference, I'm arguing that big data is going to bring misinformation. It's going to do a lot of things that actually later happen. I'm, I already have this dystopian view kind of emerging. I'm at this conference. And then I look at my phone and it's like, Turkey, tear gas, what's going on? Istanbul, like a couple blocks from where I'm born. Like I'm on a plane. Like you can't do this without me. <laughs> so I go there. But there, that's when I started formulating what becomes my book is that there's a way in which the social networks, the digital media, our connectivity, allows us to scale up really fast. So we can go like the biggest march ever, the Women's March, biggest march ever. We keep having this way in which we can organize really giant marches and protests, and we can come together. We can do a lot of things. Now, are those things valuable? They are. They're very valuable. We find each other. We draw strength. We make a statement. But in the past, the famous one in the U.S. is March on Washington. In the past, if you had organized a March on Washington in 1963, as you did, it took you 10 years to get there. And in those 10 years, you also built infrastructure. You learned how to work together. You learned how to delegate. You learned how to make decisions. You learned like how to stick together and sort of take turns. Whereas right now, I think what's happening with a lot of digital media on the protest side and on the social movement side is that the movements scale up really fast. So you go from zero to 100 miles an hour, like in a minute, and then you're entering a curve because if you're a social movement, like a government's going to come for you. The power is going to come for you. So you go from zero to 100 miles and then you're entering the first curve and you have not built the steering wheel. In the past, before building the steering wheel, you could never get there to begin with. Right now, we can do these spectacular acts of protest, which have their value in some ways. But if you're in power right now, let's say in the U.S., a million more people marching on the street, you don't care. Like It annoys the president a little bit, but I bet you they look at it, they don't care because it doesn't threaten them in ways they care about. Yeah, but that's on the receiving side in a way. I was interested, and you, you might make it sound more pessimistic, I think, than it's in the book. Because no, the I'm book, not a pessimist is, at all. It, no. is, it is very, um, no. very moving in a way from, from the side of the protesters. You make it very clear. You, you spend a lot of time, uh, empathy-wise, um, and on the ground to explain... Um, what's the longing of the protesters? What's, what's, so what's the about romantic that. about that? What is, what is, why do they have libraries? Absolutely. Why do they have a humanistic project? What is, what is the sort of proto-democratic, okay, so techno-utopian side that is, that is happening? In, so let's in, talk in about that. Places. Like I've protested my whole life, <laughs> I think. Uh, yesterday, I was honored to be invited to the Nobel ceremony. And across us, the barriers, there was a protest. I'm like... <laughs> I'm on Wait, the, I'm I'm on the, the wrong, wrong side. side here. <laughs> I was like, to, like I want. Well, it turns out they were protesting the architecture of a building. I'm like, all right, I, I, I don't think I have that much. Like, if it was a pro refugee thing, I was yeah. gonna be like, all right, I'm ditching the ceremony. I'm kidding, uh, but I was tempted. The thing is, though, because I think the reason we protest, at least on some broad left, however you want to define it, whatever your internal things are, I'm not going to get there, uh, is that, see, uh, 
Political scientists look at protests as a risk you take, a price you pay to get something, like a price, a cost. To me, it's a place where you're existentially alive because you get out of the rat race. You're not there to make money. You find community of people that think like you. Uh, I have been, like my book's title is Twitter and Tear Gas. And it's not because I hate tear gas. I mean, I don't like tear gas. <laughs> uh, but there's a way in which when you're with a crowd of people and then they tear gas you. And at first you think you're going to die because it's like it, you can't breathe, right? But after you live through it once, you're like, okay, I'm not going to die, right? You just get very annoyed. And then your eyes are hurting. And what happens is somebody comes and picks you up. Somebody washes your face. Like people who have no expectation. In a lot of protests... People are good, as you say. What they I'm saying is that there's a way in which... I experienced this actually in the aftermath of um, the earthquake in Turkey, which sounds like a horrible thing. Like there, it is. Tens of thousands of people dead. But in the aftermath, there was enormous solidarity. You see that Rebecca Solnit has this great book, uh, Paradise and Hell. You go see this. After major disasters, the people in power expect that there'll be a Hobbesian war of all against all. People come together, organize, help each other. So I think social movements and protests occupy. It was a beautiful space to be in. And it affirms like caring for one another outside of financial considerations just because human to human. I mean, I think that's a very big political thing. I think that's really important. The thing, so I, I'm like, when people ask me like, Are protests useless? I'm like, they are the most amazing thing on the planet. They don't threaten power by themselves. It's a different point than the fact that life affirming is the positive thing. So the question is, like, you affirm human values, human to human. But then how do we create a world in which we don't have to get tear gas somewhere to do that? So I, I tend to agree with you, and I think this is a disagreement maybe between the, the two of us. But, um, I, I mean, isn't this a lesson, though, that the um, um, political parties and political movement, as you also describe in your book, learned uh, a long time ago, that you actually have to organize in the real world, that you have to build infrastructure? Okay. And I, 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 I want to say the Internet is yeah. real world, too, so I don't no, want to okay. do that. Okay, I'm sorry, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but that you have to organize also um, right. in terms of infrastructure, in terms of... Yes. Majorities. Uh, you have to have majorities. No, Elected you have to have yeah. you have to have logistics. You have to have an organiz- You have to have a method. You have to have a long-term right. strategy. But I guess my question would be um, because you also describe this arc in your book. I think there was this moment when people, a lot of people, believed this, this new layer of technology would be a tool that would fit better yes. for yes. the revolutionaries, yes. the uh, the people yes. who were fighting yes. repression. But right. when we look at it now, it seems like it's almost the opposite. That it's also a really efficient tool for repression. It is. And can so you... that's actually a chapter in my book. Yeah. Uh, because I couldn't just leave that out. Can I ask you, did you think when you started writing the book, were you more optimistic when you started writing the book? Because well, it I feels like you start it... out on a more positive end. Well, I mean, the book... The world came at you. It's both. Yeah. The book slightly carries, like, it's got a bit of a chronological feel to it so I can do the arc. Personally speaking, I definitely moved from, wow, they can't do, they can't stop it to, oh, wow, they can. Like, so I personally did move a little bit. I wasn't like completely naive, but I definitely got a little more worried. But 
what happened, part of like the last chapter, the misinformation, this, a lot of stuff, I added that uh, partly because I saw what was happening in the U.S. election. I finished the book before the election, but I was seeing it already elsewhere. I ended up getting caught in the coup in Turkey, which was this total coincidence. I was there on vacation. So nowadays, wherever I go, people are like, what's going to happen there? So I hope Stockholm is fine. <laughs> um, but let me just say that. So in the past, the reason, and I know in Sweden, the Me Too movement is big, yeah. right? With sexual harassment. There's a way in which sexual harassment and authoritarian power have something in common. And that is you rule and you control by keeping people isolated, right? So authoritarians rule by pe- keeping it so that you can't tell your neighbor, like you're too afraid and there's no means of saying, look, I also don't like it. So you start thinking, I'm the minority, like everybody must be fine. Like, so they censor you from one another to keep you You feel lonely, isolated. You feel isolated, the, uh, even though you're a majority. Mm. And pl- there's a social science term for this pluralistic ignorance. In sexual harassment, in cultures where this is also common, like shaming people about female sexuality, women's bodies, it's a very common technique. You feel ashamed, right? So the Me Too movement is also saying it's not just you, right? It's structural. So that's the part in which I think that works. Now, here's the trick, though. The reason, there's an, the, the fact that right now authoritarians cannot keep you from knowing easily what your neighbors think. We can talk with one another. But it turns out it's a little more complicated in that if they can't break the link between information and you, they can break the link between information and political action by making that information useless. And they do this by flooding the space with enormous amounts of information. There's so much information. You're like, which is true? Which is false? What do I do? You're lost, right? You can't tell the signal from the noise. They can challenge the credibility of the information. So right now, the first thing we saw like against the Me Too movement in the US is that some shady outlet went to the Washington Post pretending to be a rape victim hoping that this false thing would be published and therefore delegitimize the, and undermine the credibility of the other accusers of a Senate candidate. They do this on social media in different ways. Like you post something and somebody goes, that's not true. That's not right. Like there's like 50 people questioning whether it's fake or hawks. And if you're an ordinary person, you're like, which is true, which is not, right? This is really hard. And this is especially true since the gatekeepers have both weakened, like they're not as credible, like they're not as, they're not the gatekeepers. And also there have been major mistakes. And this was, I was on the panel, um, that you were, um, the the one after we moderated, uh, the, um, the, the one we did with the, the second one where we discussed this with, um, General Hayden, General Hayden, among others, is that, yeah, the thing is, There are ways in which, for example, the New York Times, which I write for at the moment, and is a great paper in many ways, but completely failed on the run-up to the Iraq war, completely got played and taken in. And they apologized. And like, but see, that's, you see what I'm saying? There are ways in which that the gatekeepers have failed. 
Uh, there were no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. There was like all these things in which the gatekeepers, the previous gatekeepers, they failed in big ways. So we have this combination in which the new authoritarians can flood the place with misinformation and challenge the credibility. And the old gatekeepers are trying to assert themselves, but they also haven't come to terms with the process by which they lost the trust, right? A lot of institutions that I'm part of too, like the academy, we lost some things. We got captured by corporate interests. We got a lot of things. So it's, it's a, not only a media game. So I mean, it's yeah. also the gatekeepers are at that moment uh, in 2011, um, Wall Street and parliamentary democracy in a way. So that, which, yes. which is sort of, um, and, and those are terms that are now um, fraud. So it was an anti-elitist protest and it was populism. Uh, I, I, I hate both terms at the moment because they were sort of usurped by the right, but this is what Occupy was. And so it's interesting to see sort of, even though that short history of, mm. of, of uh, um, internet movements uh, is, is uh, in a way overshadowed by this failure, it is the same dynamic that brought in a way or that gave the alt-right power so 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 that yeah um, these from, dynamics from the left to the right so to these dynamics for of, of, the left and the right so that is that is even more troubling to see sort of an uh, an optimistic emancipatory movement um lose strength to corporate power i mean mm -hmm. karen will <laughs> We'll, we'll, we'll ask more about her specific fiend Facebook yeah. um, and, sure. and, and the ways of yeah, money sort of played a role in, in changing that dynamic. But, but the underlying um, problem is still there. So the legitimacy problem of the gatekeepers and, I, and, and parliamentary democracy. I think at the moment we are undergoing a major technological historic transformation. Artificial intelligence, digital connectivity, smartphones... That is, unfortunately for the world, coinciding with massive elite failure. Because when I look at the world, like artificial intelligence is going to displace millions of drivers because there'll be self-driving cars. Now, you sometimes hear this, self, this trolley problem about self-driving cars. You know, should they run over this person or that person? If anybody talks about this, don't listen to them. It doesn't matter. Self-driving cars will almost certainly be safer than human drivers. There'll be some accidents, but look, you know, in the U.S., 40,000 people die. Cars are not safe. It's almost certain that they're going to be safer that way. So that's like that debate to me is like pointless. We'll get there. I mean, it won't be human. But here's the thing. They will unemploy drivers. Now, they'll tell you it's actually not a large number because the number of people, but it's a very specific population Around the world, driving is a, a job of last resort to young men. So when you displace 50-year-olds by technology, it's a tragedy. Right now in the U.S., for example, there are a lot of people who had union jobs, and they lost them, and they're 50, and they're 60. There's not, they're not going to get a new job. And for them, this is a tragedy because, you know, they're just... And we see these, like, their mortality is going up. You have an opioid crisis, despair, horrible... <coughs> When you displace millions of young men around the world, that's more than a tragedy. Those are militias, right? There's never been something good that's come out of unemploying and displacing from the job market young men.
It's a very specific historic thing. This is coming at us very fast. Now, here's the lucky part. This is solvable very easily, right? You just need to employ these people for infrastructure, for care work. Like there's so many things that people could be doing that is perfectly plausible. We could just raise the wages. Apple has $150 billion in cash sitting around. They don't even know what to do with it. $150 billion. They're not paying taxes. Like we have, we don't have a global war. Yes, we have climate change, but like it's not happening like, this moment so that we have everything in place to ease what is going to be historically painful transition for the transitioning generation, right? The printing press brought us hundreds of years of war too. I mean, it's great, but it brought us hundreds of years ago. So we have everything in place, but the politics is so screwed up and our overlords are so myopic. They would still be fabulously wealthy if they pay taxes a little bit more. I mean, if Apple didn't have 150 billion, it had only say 10 billion in the Cayman Islands. I think it would be just fine. So we're having, we're, I think we're going through both a major historic transformation, but under very peaceful conditions that we could deal with. But the politics isn't going there and our elite failure isn't going there, which is why I'm both very optimistic. I'm personally like an, I'm an optimist. I'm like, look, you know, we don't have any major crisis. Like we have some wars here and there. They're horrible, but we don't have World War II. We can solve this if we can get our act together. The part of me that's pessimistic is like when I look at the ruling classes and the powerful people, I mean, they are acting so short-sighted and incredibly against even their own interests. And history... There's a great book called March of Folly by Barbara Tuchman. She's great. She documents again and again how elites in power have a solution right in front of them that would get them out of the crisis, and then they go to the stupid thing, and then they ruin themselves too. Right? So I think we face this danger. It's a real danger. I want to talk about a specific aspect of um, what you're describing and... Now you've been talking about the politics, uh, the political situation, but it's also a fact now that the, the biggest powers in the world are uh, arguably companies. And we have a couple of them that are uh, so enormously big that it's just unfathomable in a way, Facebook and Google. And we talked right. about this the other day. But I find it very interesting and I find it... I want to talk about the economics of this, of the sure. attention economy, and what kind of world it is that uh, they are building or that we are building, and what kind of behavior and what kind of emotions and what kind of incentives mm -hmm. uh, they are structuring uh, human behavior around. So can you describe... Um, Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. What happens, like the advertising model of, 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 of Facebook and Google, why is that important to understand okay. if you want to understand the world that we live in today? So how many people here are on Facebook? I'm just curious. Everybody's 
Okay. So you, like if I give an example, this is not going to be crazy. I'm on Facebook. I think it's great in many ways. Like I'm also, I'm an immigrant. I have family around the world. I use Facebook, WhatsApp all the time. They connect me. Wonderful. The business model is harvesting your attention and selling it to advertisers. All they want to do is they want to keep you on the site. I assume people also use YouTube. So I'm going to give two examples. And that's sort of the thing. Um, let's, start with, let's start with the Facebook example. On the internet, you know those pop-up ads that come up sometimes? They're useless. I, have you ever clicked on one? Nobody clicks on them. Like they, they're, they're just a big scam. They're horrible. Um, but on Facebook, because it has so much data on you, it can target you increasingly well. And increasingly, Facebook and Google are the only place where the advertisements work. Traditional ads don't really work well. So, but to work, they need to harvest a lot of your data to feed into these algorithms that figure out at the scale of 2 billion people who to show to whom. So to work, they have to be these super surveillant big brother systems. That's worrisome. But Facebook is also different in that it's not um, like TV ads. You see TV ad, you roll your eyes. We have now a lot of experiments that show that Facebook is different because it's also where you connect to people. And where you connect to people is a form of socialization. And socialization has a lot of power. And I'll give you guys an example that we talked about briefly before from an experiment that got published in Nature. And Nature is like the top scientific journal. And this was a really well-done experiment where Facebook took 61 million people. Because you're Facebook, you're, gonna experiment. you're not going to experiment on 61 people. You're going to experiment on 61 million people. And they randomly divided them, which is how you do a true experiment. And one group got this message saying it's voting day, something like that. And the other group got a message saying it's voting day. And the other group got shown tiny thumbnails, tiny, tiny thumbnails of their friends who clicked on I voted. Because on election day, you can go click on I voted on Facebook. It's one of their little badges. They showed this message once. And then because on Facebook, a lot of people use their real names. They, in the US, whether or not you voted, the voter rolls are public. It's just the way it is by law. They went and checked whether the group that was shown it's voting day versus it's voting day with tiny thumbnails of your pictures. I mean, you can literally barely see it if you just, they look very similar. So when they checked, the people that were shown the th tiny thumbnails, that group had turned out an extra 340,000 people more on that group. So with one message, they had turned out 340,000 more voters. And if they hadn't told us they'd done that, we'd have no idea because it happened screen by screen. I mean, to their credit, they at least told us they experiment this. So you might say, oh, is this a fluke? They repeated the experiment in 2012. It's a beautiful paper. It's like this, the statistics is great. It's a true, real experiment where they really went to great lengths to try to get all the confounding stuff. And the second time, very similar thing. They turned out 280,000 more people. So... 
And using machine learning stuff, Facebook could figure out which party you were going to vote for. This is like off-the-shelf easy right now to predict with great statistical reliability and validity who you're going to vote for. It's like 100% perfect, but it's like 90% perfect. It's very good. So this is the thing I fear. Like you could, if you're Facebook, you could differentially turn out one party versus the other. And you could swing a close election. There are pernicious examples from advertising too. These algorithms, machine learning algorithms right now, for example, can take your social media data and they can predict pretty good if, for example, you're going to be entering a manic phase in the next month before there are any clinical symptoms. They predict it better than you do. They predict it better than your doctor would. We don't even know how they're doing this. This is this new artificial intelligence stuff. And you could be selling, you could go to Facebook and say, Give me people who are going to buy me tickets to Vegas. And it could be picking up people who are about to enter a manic phase and are about to become vulnerable to compulsive gambling. So this is the Facebook kind of power. I'll give you a YouTube example too, sort of to show you what, why I fear this stuff. Uh, on YouTube, if you go... I did this. I studied Donald Trump's movement. I thought he should have been taken seriously. I was writing, you know, take him seriously when people thought he was a joke. So I was going to his rallies. I was just sort of studying. And so I started watching some of his rallies because I'm going to write about it. And if you watch Donald Trump on YouTube, I got recommended white supremacist stuff. First sort of mild, and then it goes downhill, right? You know how YouTube has autoplay on the right? It just autoplays stuff. So I was getting these sort of white, white supremacist stuff. I'm like, is this some correlation? Is this like... So you go and check, and you watch, say, Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders stuff. And then it starts showing you conspiracy left. So it's pushing you to the edge there. My favorite example is the non-political one. If you go and watch a video on YouTube about being vegetarian, YouTube starts recommending videos about being vegan. You are never hardcore enough for YouTube. It's trying to constantly push you to the edge. What's going on is not that YouTube's programmers are trying to do something. They've unleashed this artificial intelligence that says, keep people on the site. You know what keeps people on the site? Seducing you into the hardcore. Wherever you start, getting you to the hardcore. This is the advertising model, right? This is really dangerous. So right now, we have built our public sphere because these are essentially our quasi-public sphere on these two giant monopolies, and we can discuss why they're monopolies. There's lots of structural reasons. Whose business model is to either, in the case of YouTube, pull you to the edge, and in the case of Facebook, uh, long sort of story, but outrage does really well. And cute, cuddly stuff do really well. I sometimes liken it to sugar, salt, and fat. Like you have sort of these appetites and it just, Facebook is a cafeteria where sugar, salt, and fat are served for breakfast, dinner, and lunch. And that's their business model. And we've turned over our public sphere to them. We've turned over the advertising to them. So to me, that is super duper dangerous Especially since the problem isn't that they're doing this on purpose because they're evil, but because they have a business model that combined with artificial intelligence, machine intelligence, 
pulls them that way. And they're printing money while doing it. Right? So they're not sitting and saying, let's ruin the public sphere. They're kind of like, let's make money, and this is the direction in which it works. So yeah, this, is my, yeah, so this yeah. is my problem. Can I just ask? So, <laughs> no, but I'm, I'm thinking about, uh, so we hear all these, um, um, these companies taking all these measures, saying, no, we'll fix this, we'll do fact-checking, we'll do blah, blah, blah. But in my mind, thinking about this, when you think about the business model, thinking about the actual drivers of this, right. I mean, you can't really change this if you don't change the incentives, if you don't, don't change, the, change the economic realities underlying this, and how... Right, so let me say two things there. <laughs> now, you're going to... I yeah. mean, I'm going to join their fight, I guess, is that there's a lot of good people who work in these companies. They mean well. Like when they it's say not that easy. I'm not, I'm not that yeah. <laughs> So when they say we're going to go try to fix it, very often they do mean it. Like, they're going to try. Like, they're not just lying. But do they agree on what the problem is? Right. But see, here's the thing. I don't think they can tweak their way out of it. Like, I don't think they're lying when they say they're going to try. Because the the fact-checking is not going to work. I mean, it'll work to the degree if the algorithm stops showing the stuff, it'll work. But if you just warn people, that's just going to be like... Because it's already very polarized. I think the business model... And the artificial intelligence are driving this. And here's my other worry, is that I know that a lot of people want to bust them up. Why should there be one Facebook? Fine. Let there be five Facebooks. Let's introduce market competition. But if you don't change the incentive structure, what you'll end up is five horrible Facebooks. So you want to socialize Facebook? No, (laughs) because then a government will be like, how do I use this to manipulate people? Like there's a problem. This, if you if you socialize Facebook like China, like China socialized its own Facebook in the sense that it's government. Like I mean, this is such power. They're not dr- driving I mean, outrage. They, yeah, they're just see, controlling people. Yeah. So yeah. The, my fear is that like if you just sort of nationalize something like that, it is so tempting for governments to use this for government things. So I, I'm sorry. Like let's go back to the protest. Yeah. Can my we whole go life. sort of one step back? Yeah. <laughs> So the, I think the abstract is the only place where the optimism resides, apparently. So if the no, no, <laughs> I, I, have moment, <laughs> I have actually, let me, let, let me say that if you change the incentive structure, right, I think the solution isn't busting them up. I think the solution but, is in but, changing the incentive structure around data. But they're making money data, from this. How, right? Why would they change it? Well, that's what we can do as governments, like not take over Facebook mm-hmm. and not necessarily bust it up so that you have five horrible Facebooks. Yes. But they need, like, for example, I don't see why, here's crazy, why is targeted advertising okay? This is a public discussion that should be had. Like, should we let people be targeted by profiling them? I think that is a perfectly legitimate question for a society to say, are we going to allow this or not? Uh, Just the way Europe has some data protections, fine, but there can also be data use protections, is it okay to find if you're more susceptible to buying this? Now, you'll say that advertisers have always done it, which is true. They've always tried. But in the past, it was more like alchemy. It's kind of not really working that well. Right now, we have chemistry, right? It's working right now in ways that didn't used to work. So once it starts working, I think it's a perfectly legitimate social discussion to say, what are you allowed to do with a tool that's gotten really good? 
Because I think as long as we don't have that discussion and we just break up Facebook, we get five little Facebooks. They all do the same thing. I don't see, like, that might not be better. Race to the bottom. If we let the government have it, I can think a lot of horrible things the government can do with it. Again, the abstract level. No, but, so I think what, you, what is so great in your uh, take on technology is that it's uh, learned by being a, a programmer or a coder. And, that and, helps. and it's, it's experienced through activism. So it's, it's, it's beyond uh, the divide. This is uh, good or this is bad. Or as you quote in the books so of technology is neither good nor bad, nor is it no neutral. So it's, it's always happening. It's always mm -hmm. influencing something. But, but as you also point out, the only place for um, public sphere, basically, that we can imagine at the moment is that place, which is privatized, which is... Um, it's like a shopping mall. You're term. like, we're having all so, our conversations. In the but shop. this is also the only place where the change of consciousness could take place. Or can it take place Absolutely. somewhere else? Well, see, the thing is, I don't advocate a boycott because I think we don't have market power over these companies right now. Like, if we could all go someplace, I don't think that works. Also, like, this is where we find one another. Like, why am I supposed to boycott out of being able to find one another? Why am I supposed to, like, yes, I write for the New York Times. It's a great paper. But why should New York Times get to say who we get to talk with and what's news, right? They get things wrong, too. Um, so I think that we have, this is why my optimism comes from, is that we have everything in place to organize, including using these tools. Fine. I mean, I, I'm, I'm on Twitter all the time. I love it, right? I mean, it has its downsides, but I like it. I use Facebook all the time. We have these tools. Google too. Great. I mean, like for some, I, I, there's so much good potential. And I think these tools do really good stuff in the world too, in ways that I am not nostalgic for the old world. Like I don't have the sort of, let's go back to the old style. But I think if we, I sometimes like, I started likening to like, do you know the book Silent Spring, which warned about the chemical um, environmental dangers? It was this big book. So one of the things people forget is that like, in the 40s, 50s, the people overused DDT, which is this pesticide. People didn't overuse DDT because they were crazy. DDT killed the mosquitoes. Also, like it did great things, right? I mean, we might have like helped destroy the environment too, but it was great in so many ways. But somebody had to come and say, well, look, it doesn't just kill mosquitoes. You're just like, if you put it in the, it's the same thing. Like lead is very useful. You just don't want to use it in pain so that kids get it. So I think these technologies are similar in that. There's an enormous upside. But just because there's an enormous upside doesn't mean that they don't have like some, let's say, almost like radioactive waste, right? Like they have this really dangerous underbelly and we have to address that. Can I make the utopian case? Um, so, so if you say the last industrial revolution produced nation states... Um, in a way, sort of... Uh, After or, hundreds or, of years of war, yes. hundreds of years of war, or through <laughs> sort of... A turmoil. I'm not saying it's going to be pleasant or peaceful, but, but so if this is the, the next industrial revolution, isn't um, maybe the problem that the, the form uh, doesn't fit the, 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 the mechanism. Nothing right. So, if, so if, and, and as you say, I like that you say we have the tools in place, but the tools aren't made for anything that resembles uh, what we have in, 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 in global governance. So what, what, what needs to, or what eventually has, or will change, 
is that system of how we live together. So the, the, the tools are there for very different forms of living together, very local, sort of with a global sure. co consciousness in a way about problems. But, but sort of it, is, it is already, I think, is palpable that, that the, the disenchantment with this um, two billion world of Facebook is, is, is happening. So, so that, that, the, the, the assumption that human, humans will just become dumber and dumber or bore, more bored I don't think bored humans are is, becoming is, dumber. Um, no, I, I mean, I think like, there's never been a better time to get a lot of good information too. Uh, are you asking, like, will we build other tools? No, will we build other realities with those tools? Sure. And Isn't the automatism of that tool, of the digital tool, a different form of uh, so, governance? I mean, this is interesting. Like, okay, so to, get, to take it that's back my, to... Always, that's my take. <laughs> just to annoy Karin uh, to get away, do away with nation states. That's the well, okay, recurring so theme. I hate to be like, on the one hand, on the other hand, <laughs> no, no, land no, in the side. middle. I don't like that, but I'm going to do a bit of this. I think, like politically speaking... The nation state does not match the scale of our problems for sure, right? Our problems are global. Like even in Europe, like you, Podemos comes to power in one country, but or Syriza, right? What happens is that you have the EU level problems. So that doesn't like you. The, the problems you have do not get solved at the nation state. But nation state is like the last bit of sovereignty we have left. Because You're just a centrist after all. No, I'm not. So, um, I'm, so we're going to go sort of, so do you have the last social democrats here. Yeah, no, I'm, 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 I'm going to try to avoid ending up in the center. So <laughs> you have lost sovereignty. And I think what you need is to find tools, political tools and technical tools. So you decide whether this is your center or not. To re-exercise the basic right, which is sovereignty over your own life and things that have power over you. This is corporations, this is nation states, this is like sort of environmental stuff because I think the crisis we have is a loss of sovereignty. Like everything gets lived as if it was a force of nature. Like Apple doesn't pay taxes on 150 billion and everybody's like, what can we do? Like there's a lot of things we can do, right? This isn't the weather, right? There's a lot of things we can do, but we lost sovereignty. And you elect someone and then you lose sovereignty over them. So I think we have a crisis in which the very basic things that started the hundreds of years of war in Europe, which is like people's desire for sovereignty, they've eroded. So what are the tools of sovereignty look like? I think you've got to rebuild it at every level because you also lost sovereignty over local stuff and you lost sovereignty over global stuff. Like it's just sort of out of your hands. Um, so that's a big political project. Like I, I'm not going to say I pretend I have an answer in my back pocket, but Again, the good thing is I think we have the technical tools for this kind of political project. Um, I think the need for that kind of political project is really here. We just don't seem to be bringing it together in the political vision. But, and do, that, we have, yeah. Yeah. but do we have the tools for it? Because I, I guess to uh, George's question, um, I'm thinking about the political movements that have come up through... Um, and have been really good at using mm -hmm. um, this technology. And you were mentioning Podemos. And, um, and I mean, of course, the right-wing populists are really, really good at this, but there are uh, 
but I haven't seen an example of, of, of a political project that have started, that have been good at using this technology and that has lasted and has built those capacities that you talk about in the book that is about logistics, this is about long-term ideas, that mm-hmm. is about, uh, also about governing, not only about protesting, right. so, but, but, but about actually... So I guess to your question, I, I agree with your question, are these the right, or is it even possible using this technology to do the kind right. of organizing or we, to organize okay, politics well, in the all, way that is needed? All right. On the one hand, this is all very new, right? Yeah. We haven't had that long. The second thing that I think is a difference between the left and right is the left has a critique of power, whereas the right has an instrumental view of power. It wants to take power, right? So whereas the left is ambivalent about power itself. And that's a philosophical thing because I think left's ambivalence towards power often results in trying to create, and that was my critique of Occupy, is to try to create these little enclaves, mm. which are beautiful, but then power comes for you and then just goes chump, mm. right? So how do you merge a critique of power with political goals that are oriented towards taking that power? And I have a friend who um, tried to run for office in Argentina. She did try to do these things. And she was asked in an interview, like, why are you running for our office if you have this critique of power and how corrupting it is? Why do you want power? And she was like, to give it back to the people. I don't know how exactly that political project works. But in the past, when we had elections, we elected people, we sent them, and then four years later, you voted again. That is clearly not a way to exercise power by the people. Now, there's been some experiments like liquid democracy. You go, like, mm, you know, I, 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 the fact that they don't really work that well right now doesn't mean that there isn't something to try to find a way in which that we don't just elect people, send them, and then they do what they want, right? Because th- those kinds of things, we don't really need to do it that way anymore. Um, so building sort of power with a critique of power, that's the project. Also in the, in the book you have, I mean, to be fair, you end uh, or optimistically or you end or you, you, you act, exit optimistically you, you take off optimistically so you have uh, you, you talk about cap- capabilities and yes. I, I like what you say about yes. sovereignty or taking right. so if asking the, the question of power and, and combining that with the notion of what is a movement capable of doing or what are people right. capable of doing and there are three capabilities the last I forgot but the, the first two was the, was the narrative disrupt, uh, yeah. narrative capability and disruptive capability and I think in a way it's sort of also in our discussions the narrative capability comes back and back. And what do you say about I mean, the so loss of jobs, for example? That's a very clear example of that you have to give people a story to understand what life should or could be right. like and, and how, as you say, or how government by the people for the people could look like. What does right. it mean? So basically that reteaching people um, what it is, Re- what I their mean, play right is. Now, I mean, even though it's sort of a very interesting period, I'll come back to that, but just to take it to the Silicon Valley, I think they're stuck in this tiny business model. I, I don't think they're innovative. I, I think they're like the boringest people on earth now. They're trying to sell ads. Like, is there something more boring on the planet to try to get people to click on ads? 
And we've got these, all these smart people. They're all in this tiny little space. That's all they're trying to do, right? So there's a huge sort of potential, like both business models and different ways of doing and nonprofits maybe and cooperatives. There's like a million things that could be tried. And all our technological, like the smart people are like in this tiny little space and very narrow. I feel like politically too, we're like actually kind of stuck. We are having, we're rehashing a lot of old arguments. So I think if once we break out of that, once we like, because the Silicon Valley, they're thinking like, we're so innovative. I'm like, no, you're very boring. Like you're in this tiny, boring space. Um, so I think politically, we're also in this tiny, boring space, to be honest. We're re-arguing 20th century stuff. Like, if we just sort of admit it to ourselves, and I'm not saying, like, I'm not. Like, we're all kind of, we're products of that world. So once we admit it to ourselves, and then let's say, let's experiment. I don't know what's going to work, but I think sort of experimenting with compassion so that you don't just go and say, this one failed, that one failed, is a great way forward. Because once again, we don't have a World War II that's bearing down on us. We don't have, like, famine. We have enough tea. There's all these things. Uh, so the question, which is in itself a uh, uh, Silicon Valley approach to things, in a way, the, the experiment, well, you the, know the, what? the small term. I uh, don't um, think, like, look, this is my, this is the geek side in me. This is the science side in me. I think experimenting and failing and learning from that failure and being compassionate, so that you're not just pointing fingers and saying, "Okay, we tried this. Let's try something else." And taking the parts of it that work. Like when I look at Occupy, when I look at Podemos, when I look at Syriza, when I look at all the other things that I have varying degrees of agreement and disagreement, I'm like, let's not like have this sort of blah, blah, you did it wrong, you did it wrong. Let's be like, all right, what did we learn? And the thing that was really interesting yesterday about um, the, when I had the sort of pleasure, honor of having some conversations with Nobel laureate people The one thing that's really interesting in the scientific ethos is that these people, and I've seen this done, right? This is sometimes hard to believe from the outside. They'll sit around and they'll be like, you're wrong. And they really argue things out and try to get at it. And then they're like, okay, they find something and they move on. I mean, that kind of that spirit of being able to hash it out. You find this in top scientists a lot. And it looks like sometimes people think science is a bunch of conform. Like, it, really not. And I've seen this so many times. Like, can we bring this to politics? And here, I think Facebook and Twitter are not good for it. Because Facebook and Twitter, because they're based on the attention economy, they incentivize bickering. Because it's like a car wreck, right? You're just looking at a fight. And it's like, oh, you're just watching a fight. And that's good. I think that's the kind of thing that I'm actually anti-technology that way. Because I think there's a way in which you can do this face-to-face best. Or if you're going to do it with technology, you have to build tools that don't drive you to the center. There's this platform called Lumio that a lot of people in Spain use that tries to get people to, you know, how do you reach consensus? There's tools like that. So we can build tools like that. And I think it'd be perfectly fine to say for this... We're not going to do it in the attention economy space. We're going to do it face-to-face because, you know, people-to-people, there's something there. Um, and there's so many movements in so many countries. So on the right, this is really funny, the white supremacists, the white nationalists, they're actually quite globally organized. 
I'm like, aren't you guys supposed to hate each other or something? Like you're all nationalists? No, they don't. They're like, they're always talking and learning from each other. And there's this sort of great international network, which is kind of you know, funny or not, depending on how much you're into gallows humor. Uh, but there's a way in which I think the left doesn't really do that as much. So to end on the hopeful note, the, one of the first things I did when I got on the internet was to attend one of these encuentros that the Zapatistas had organized where they got all these people together around the world. I didn't know a thing. Like, we just had email. And it was like, we're organized. I'm like, all right, I managed to buy a ticket. I just showed up. And they're like, oh, you're not Mr. Zainab because back then there were no pictures. were just email, right? Like, no, I'm not Mr. Zainab. I met a lot of people. There were maybe a thousand people from around the world that got together days and days, just try to sort of, I, I still see those people. And one of the things that like the Zapatistas, whatever, there's a lot in my book about it and there's stuff to learn, stuff not to learn because it's just an indigenous uprising, right? We can't just sort of have nostalgia for that. One of their sayings that I learned from them was like, when you ask them, what are you doing? They'd be like, well, you just make your path walking. It was a saying. I'm like, that's perfectly fine. That's why I end up my book on that, right? That's the kind of spirit. You keep walking, you keep asking questions with compassion to one another and with an ethos of like, let's experiment. You know, the world's your oyster. (laughs) You can do something with that kind of project. I think that's a perfect uh, place to end this discussion. And I just want to say that... um, a person in the audience who's a, a fan of the podcast came up to me before this conversation and said, can we please have a discussion group about the issues that you're talking about and talking about yeah. like face-to-face conversations and uh, how to move and forward. And you can also do Facebook and exper- with it. And the know, experimentation. Just, yeah. So uh, on that note, um, experiment and uh, make your path as you walk. Or as you walk. Thank, Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.